0: Another episode of the Fit Professional One podcast. I'm thrilled today to have an old friend and high school alumni with me today. His name is Greg Weber. He is the CEO of Colorcraft Graphic Arts, and he's got a long and storied career. And we're going to have just a ball today talking about the importance of athletics and how we transition from a student athlete to a fit professional why that matters, how we can keep that going, and all kinds of fun stuff. So with that, I really like you, Greg, to give us your background. We'd love to hear about you.
1: Great. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. And uh, I'll just give you all a quick background of myself, again, Greg Weber. I was born and raised in the same area as Paul. We went to high school together. And from there, I went off and played two years of college football at UW-Stout. And again, looking back on my high school career at Paul, we saw a lot of crazy activity and on the field and off. And, and the same continued as I went off to UW-Stout. I ended up graduating from Stout with my business degree. I later carried out a, my MBA at Marquette University again stout kind of gets a bad rap so i always say that i redeemed myself by going to marquette and obtaining my mba <laughs> yeah but uh, but anyway it was a lot of hard work i <laughs> I cool. did that while I had three kids and two of them were in diapers. And so it was, that was not an easy activity as well. But, uh, but anyway, my business career started with my wife. I met my wife in, in college and we, we uh, traveled off to the west and the south. And uh, there was not a lot of work when I graduated. So I, I took on a printing job in Dallas, Texas and my wife, we got married. She came with me and we started uh, quite the adventure for eight years. We traveled the west coast and my job. I was trained up to take a printing facility and update the equipment. I was trained to reestablish the ERP system and the data entry system. And after I was taught, I went to Ventura, California, San Francisco, a year stint each, Phoenix, Arizona, Seattle, Washington, and my early career was as such. So I learned a lot about meeting new people, engaging a team very quickly, and learned how to implement systems based on extensive preparation and training as we talk about athletics. And from that point, we started having children and we came back home. So I took on a job with a company called Ceregraph, and actually I started at a company, Rubbermaid, you all know Rubbermaid, spent some time running a large paintbrush factory and did some lean, learned lean manufacturing in that facility. We took a completely decentralized organization and made it cellular. So it was a functional process that we turned from functionals, from, from making the filaments, making the ferrules, making the handles into cellular, where all that was done within work cells, So this is very basic for people to understand, which I love, in that you take a one and a half inch brush that you go and buy at the store, we could make that in about an eight hour timeframe versus taking a week to get it through this long functional process. So as a young man, I learned a lot from that effort. So from there, once that all transitioned, I took an opportunity get back into print. And I worked at Saragraph in West Bend, Wisconsin for about 12 years in the screen printing industry. I ran international operations there. I opened a factory in Guangzhou, China. I ran a facility in Chihuahua, Mexico and a facility in Bangalore, India. And I really finished that stint in my career as an international leader. I took an opportunity then to run a promotional products company for four or five years. I did that. It was a very nice opportunity. And then I moved into, this was some short stints here. My career has been very varied and I look back on it and I have a lot of respect for people that move and create as they go throughout their career. And so then I moved into display work. And when you go to a trade show, there's a company called Dercy I worked for a few years and I ran six operations around the country. And basically all my weekends were consumed either at a show in Vegas or a show in New York or a show in wherever. And it was a bit much for me. So I got out of that and back. And previous to my current position as the CEO of ColorCraft Graphic Arts here in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, I spent seven years working for R Donnelly, which is the bit largest printer in the world. So I ran a facility that printed all the point of purchase products for, for Home Depot, for Target. For Cricket, my little facility in, uh, right next to the airport in Milwaukee produced all that product. I started it out as a $30 million operation and after seven years, it was $65 million, and we were really screaming and, and doing a really nice job there. I love that job. I kind of saw that as my last job and got a call from private equity. So as I've read some of Paul's works and learned a little bit more about private equity, which I don't know, I didn't know anything about until two years ago when they started courting me, <laughs> it's really be- this opportunity to run... This company, actually, I have ownership of my company as well now, which has really turned into a a fun part of it as well. You really, you kind of switch your mindset when you actually own pieces of the business, right, Paul? Mm -hmm. So it's been a a real fun event to do that. So looking back at my successes, again, Paul, I've done some really fun things in my career. I have had some pretty nice successes. My wife and I have been able to build a vacation home in Egg Harbor, Door County, which is something that we've turned into our heaven on earth. And I raised three beautiful children. I have a daughter that's a physician's assistant. I have a daughter who is a nuclear medical technician. And then my son was a I'll get into a little bit about my son's background. His background actually applies more to this than mine. <laughs> he, his statistically is the best soccer player in the history of Wisconsin. He has more goals in his career, and he ended up being like the number 30 recruit in the country as senior year. And he had a full ride scholarship for Xavier. He went to Xavier University in Cincinnati. We had a great year there. He started as a freshman and did really well at Xavier. And so his training took him to Sweden. And while he was training the year after his freshman year, he called me up and he said, Hey, dad, I'm staying. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He says, I just signed a professional contract. So his mom was not real happy about that. Of course, dad's thrilled. Like, yeah, Way to go, son. And he spent six years over there and eventually ended up had a ACL tear fixed it and went back at it and then had another ACL tear and then he had that fixed and to this day I think he's retired now but he played for the Milwaukee Wave for all you Wisconsinites if you don't know if you know the Milwaukee Wave or the Milwaukee area they're kind of a big deal I've been around a long time again it's a little professional team but James did really well with that and the neat thing I've seen as we get into the subject is James has now transitioned into a outstanding coach he took what he had learned about the sport as the athlete and now he is a coaching director over two large clubs and he actually coaches the semi-pro team here in Milwaukee called Milwaukee Torrent and he's done very very well so I've seen personally I think he's a better coach than he was a player and he's a pretty doggone good player so to look back on what's happened as an athlete you know and again I started working with James when he was four years old and we worked him into what he is today Actually, I turned him over pretty quick because I couldn't handle him, but that was a whole fun event to see. But again, backing up to the topic at hand, I can see how my career has, you know, as an athlete, we look to the athletes. I was going to kind of start this off myself, Paul, by saying that whenever I'm looking for to hire someone, any position, technical, leadership, managerial, whatever. If I get a resume that has said that a person has spent four years as a college athlete, Division three, two, II, and definitely Division one, because I know what that is all about. I know Division three as well. I went through it myself. But you see, I look at that resume with a whole different light, because I know that person had to participate in a double job. They had to study and hold up the credits of what has to get them through their college. But then they also have to go through torturous training and, you know, room in watching film and... All those type of things. And again, Paul, I'm sure you know this from your son's activities. I have a definite special place in my heart for a person that has gone through that. And that tells me, just like they always say, a person that's had a four-year degree, you know they can put up with a lot because they've had a four-year degree. and They've had to learn how to teach, how to get through the class, how to get through the day, how to get up on time, how to be on time, how to work with people. You put the athletic side of that in as a Division One, two II or three athlete, there's a whole nother level of communications, a whole nother level of multitasking. And you see it. I mean, I've worked with, I have a person on my staff today that was a college softball player. She's my customer service manager. She gets stuff done and she doesn't wait. She has a sense of urgency. She is just a special kind of a person. And I can go back across my career and each position I've held, you'll see that, college athlete that's on your team that kind of looks at the world a little differently. So that, I'll start with that Paul.
0: <laughs> that, well, That's excellent. It's, it's a can-do attitude, and we really got to peel that onion because that's not enough to say at all. As you're talking about, I want to get your reaction and your comments on high school athletics as well, because nine, what is it? 98.4% of us, like me, we got to hang it up when we're done with high school. So do you weigh high school athletic experience
1: in the same light? Absolutely. I mean, the whole idea of a team concept, I mean, I even go back to middle schoolers and and elementary. I mean, I look at my ability to be a pretty decent football player at my participation in as a youngster in swimming and the dedication it took to go to practice every day, and become a competitive swimmer. I mean, I, I look back all, oh, if a person has on their resume that I was an all-state football player or all-conference or whatever, that does shed a light. I mean, it always generates conversation. It always gives them an edge. I mean, absolutely, Paul, there's no question about it, that any kind of athletic participation is going to teach you about teamwork and communications and understanding that it's not about you, you know, because it's, it, it's just not when you're on the team.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I often in my podcast have cited the work that Angela Duxworth in the book Grit Made Famous. It was out there where they essentially now have proven that kids in extracurriculars that stick with them for two or more years are a minimum factor of 2x more successful later in life, regardless of what they do. And its follow-through is the attribute that people really learn that they were able to identify And I want to talk about more than that today with athletes, because so much actually goes into the act of follow through. But I found that really exciting. And I just think it's amazing. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, I've plugged it so many times. I think I want to (laughs) read it. (laughs) Maybe come on the podcast sometime. We'll see. But So let's get into some ideas of why you think athletics is good teaching for eventually becoming a professional. Yeah, I think that, you know, the whole idea, first and foremost, of having to,
1: I guess, report into a coach, you know, however, which way you look at it from the athlete's perspective, they either become aware of a coach that's going to help them or of a coach that they actually have to work with, because as we all know, there's good coaches and bad coaches out there, there's good leaders and bad leaders out there. So for an individual to go from again a high school or a college football team or a basketball team where they're working with that leader and watching the activities and learning from that I think that's a a huge part of it so it teaches you when you get out in the real world that you're going to have to deal with that very positive and take the good from the good and eliminate the bad from the bad and do the best that you can because in the heart of an athlete they want to exceed no matter what and so the teachings of Following a leader as a player on a team is, I think that's absolutely critical. And again, then you just boil it back down to the between practices. Again, I'll throw in a little dig here or a positive about my son. You know, the things that made him the best of the best was between practices. So the way you look at the world as an athlete, not only when you're at practice and working with your coach and your teammates being successful, it's walking away from that practice and thinking, what can I do to Mm. make myself above and beyond that? I mean, that was something that James had worked on even from the day he was 11 years old. I mean, he played, started when he was four, but from his age of 11 on, he would always work excessively and even more so between practices. And as I've seen him grow As it now as a businessman, meaning he gets paid now to coach clubs, he brings that in with his players. You know, he he talks to them and sets up programs for them to participate in between practice to get their mind sharper, to get them thinking more and more about it. So as Paul, as we speak about, you know, what is the good learning from athleticism, just like you apply learning how to dribble the soccer ball and spending that time for you or for me to learn about you know what is my best way to improve my quality in my plants what do i go outside of my four walls of my company and say what's going on out there that can help me and you know i religiously i do that you read a lot more than me paul i don't read that much but i i have a lot i have contacts that are like in the realm and as an example quality that i can go to as an example today i mm-hmm. had to step out of bounds and say hey So-and-so, so-and-so, can you help me with a way to improve? This person wants to become a continuous improvement person to help me internally with my quality systems. I mean, some of those things I can't do on my own. I look at that kind of the same way as with athleticism, where, you know, you're going to work out in the weight room a little bit more because you're going to be a little bit stronger. You're going to be a little bit faster. With us, it's kind of the same thing. An athlete's going to come out of college and say, hey, I remember working my tail off between practices I think I'm going to go outside of the realm of what I'm doing in my company, you know. So there's huge ties. And again, I hate to slight people that don't have that experience, but you have that edge. You can learn that in business as well, obviously, but you have that I see it in the people in exa- and I'll, let me let me digress again. I get excited about this ball. Oh, Sorry. this is excellent. Anyway. No, baby. <laughs> You know, when I got out of school and I came back home and I was working for this paintbrush company for Rubbermaid, I had three people I was already working with pretty tightly and we actually were the guys well. Went to Marquette, got our MBAs together. All three of those guys were college athletes. You know, they all played the football. One was a golfer, but most were football players. <laughs> and what they brought to the table was that the sense of urgency, that the need to quickly succeed, the need to become profitable. I learned about a lot about profitability from those guys I worked with out of school that had we could speak about, you know, the days on the field, but you would see them I mean, they would work on godly hours. They would take work home. They would, we went and got our masters together. But I can tell you one thing today, Paul, as I look back at those gentlemen, all three of them are presidents or CEOs today. (laughs) So it's neat to see that carries on throughout a career. And, you know, I have some examples I'll be sharing with you about. What's the gory detail, uh, the decision process of a person who has a background where you've had to go through those things?
0: I have at least five things to unpack there. That was awesome, by the way. So again, true to form, Greg is very modest. And he left some things out about high school sports. He was co-captain of our football team. And were you captain of Stout's team too? No, no, no. Uh-oh. I had to stop after my sophomore year. Yeah, I blew, blew my legs out, Paul. Okay. You're too busy, but anyway, your career is outstanding. And a couple of things you're talking about. Number one is being coachable. And you use the term on a team, you learn to follow what the coach says. So we learn to follow, but we follow to what? We follow to a, a mission. We understand. In business, I'm actually a bit jealous of the alignment on a sports team, because it's very clear. Win games, win conference, win whatever the big kahuna trophy is. It's the Super Bowl, ultimately, that kind of thing. So alignment is a little bit more ingrained when people enter the system. So that's one thing I want to unpack and talk about how we do that in our organizations. Another one is you talked about the preparation kind of off the clock, if you will. And I'll be doing some Fit Pro one media regarding what I refer to as the Carnegie clock. And it's quite interesting is Andrew Carnegie talked about the most important eight hours of the day, which is the second eight hours of the day, is learning and leisure. And of course, he spent it all learning and developing. So also I've seen that individuals, and when I do that myself, you said I read a lot, etc., It helps every part of your life, not just your career. It's really quite amazing. And I think we learned that way back in high school sports. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also want to talk about the coach. I've had a guest on before who said, you know, I brought up the 98.4, whatever the real number is that stop at high school. But most of us end up, we stop being coached, you know? And I thought that was very insightful as well, because coaches help us push our limits. And then, you know, you brought up the need to succeed in business. So let's start one at a time. Let's talk a little bit more about that extra and how does that doing extra, how do we do that in a career? I love this topic, Paul, and here's why. So I'm a big Simon
1: Sinek follower. I don't know if you know him. He's a big leadership guy. He's a TED Talks guy. It's easier for me to listen to him talk than to read a book. So I love his stuff. And as you eloquently explained, when we were in high school, We were able to say, we want to win conference. We were able to say, we want to win a game. We were able to say, I want to get hundred yards a game. You were, you know, we had those targets that were so identifiable, whereas in business, it's very hard to, to get excited about folding cartons. So how do I get my team excited about, you know, what we do from a folding carton perspective for our customers? So I look at, listen, I brought up Simon Sinek because he talks about what do people need? They need three things. They need to master their capability. They want you to help them as a leader, to master what they're about. They want autonomy, meaning on the other side of that, they want to work on their own. But the most important thing is they want purpose. So as we talk about big companies like Apple, that there's a purpose there, they're creating an experience for the world and they're the best at it, blah, 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 or they were at one time. You know, I have to find a way, we have to find a way to get people to understand that we have a purpose as a business. We don't have to go in conference, we don't have to go in a game, but what do we do to provide that purpose? So when you transition from the, your teachings and your learnings from a coach, that's very easy The coach says, Hey, we better win this damn game. And we we're going to win eight. No, so we can win con- blah, blah, blah. I mean, those things are very easy to understand. So what do we create? You know, I, then you get into your whole cultural thing. Then you create a situation where, okay, we're going to please our customer versus becoming a folding carton company. We're going to create the best experience for our customers. And that's going to be, you know, kind of our why as a company. Is that going to give my team the purpose they need? Or are they a team that needs KPIs? And I'm a big one on dashboards. I've been using dashboards for the last 20 years. Very simple, very explicit, very focused on the key KPIs that are going to make my business profitable and successful but how do you drive that to make your people want to come into work every day that's what you and i are talking about here is you've created that purpose you know and so i think of the three i can train a person mastery if you want to come to me and say, hey, will you pay for my college education? Will you send me this seminar? I have never said no. And I never will. I want my team to feel like we are supporting their mastery of their position. Okay, autonomy is easy. You know, I'm not a micromanager. I've seen that fail. You, but you just make sure your KPIs are tracking and the autonomy is there. But to create purpose is kind of what you and I are talking about. We had it. When we were at, at Memorial High School. We had it, man. and We did it. But now it's, it's very hard. So that's a big part of my day. You know, creating a positive culture is a real thing. It's a term I use often with my team. My HR manager gets tired of me talking about it, but we have to create a positive culture. So when I started here a year and a half ago, it was kind of a, a broken up company. And we spent a lot of time on, we interviewed everybody in the company. We came up with a KPI for a culture. Now this is something I'm gonna write a book about one day, Paul, because I get really excited about a KPI for culture. How do you know if you're succeeding with your team wanting to come into work? When you, so what I did is the KPI I created, and I, like I said, you'll see me write this in a book one day is the Amazon five star. Is our culture crappy? A one? Or is it, do you want to come to work every day and jump out of bed five? And we immediately, after I interviewed my team, we started putting processes and things in place to make their working environment better and every, you know, our equipment better and the things they want better. We started this KPI and, and my target was to get to a four because I buy stuff on Amazon It's a four, <laughs> you know? So I came in and we were at a three, two. Well, over time and listening and listening and driving the purpose of our company, we've gotten to a 3.9. So I'm almost there. I think I've got another six months before we have everything in place. But my point is, I think the most difficult we have to do as business people in transitioning even more so an athlete, because the athlete wants that. They want that target. They want that goal. (laughs) They want what is my conference championship now, you know, so we have to provide that to them.
0: Yes, and I think super good stuff, Greg. To me, it's very interesting because we go back to athletics. Again, the individual tends to show up aligned with what the organization's doing. And so their individual purpose is aligned with organizational purpose and, or mission. You can insert various words. And I call that alignment. And alignment is always a continuum. You and me and our teammates, we were intrinsically motivated to play high school football and you went to play college football because you wanted to. So I think that individual purpose has to really be the catalyst to make an organization strong and at organization. So we're the organization and now we need new people. You talked about growing significantly. So I want to talk about how do we bring in new people? And to me, it's kind of an invitation. We show them what we do. We talk about our purpose and then that invitation for them to get on board. And I really like what General Legwald, who we know very well said about when someone accepts a role, they have to accept that role with integrity and character and honor and respect for the organization that out there. Well, we learn that in football, right? You talked about that being coachable, doing what the coach says, right? You, so there's this element where we need individuals to get through a cycle. That's what I like to say, get through a business cycle. That might be a month, might be a year. It depends on what the job is, right? And right. then, yeah. then tell us all your great ideas. It doesn't mean you can't talk to me about them before, but We got to make sure we keep what's working, but also not make people feel like they're, you know, not valued. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what's interesting to me is so many out there in the private, well, the for-profit sector or not-for-profits looking for people, there's this kind of cry that you can't find good people. Well, what is that? Isn't that someone who comes in with the right skills? And they're aligned with what you're going to do. Well, yeah, you know, we know that. And then we get them rolling forward. So I love what you said about the three biggies that you do, and I'm interested to have you expand on purpose. Can you tell us about a story where you got somebody on board, doesn't have to be your current company, and there was a misalignment there and you were able to get them aligned. What'd you do? How'd you pull that yeah, I guess, you know, I spent my last seven
1: years at R. Donnelly and that was right before, you know, kind of, well, it was during, ended off with COVID, but to get people aligned with a $5 billion company was much harder than a, a smaller okay. company. Very, very difficult because even though I was the president of one of the organizations, I was still following the lead of my 65 million versus the 5 billion was just a bump, you know, but to get there, the objectives of R. Donnelly was very different. And it was good that the company, I praise it. I left on good terms and I just love the company. The people are still there. But as I tried to bring in people to get them focused on what we were trying to do as a POP provider to Home Depot. Then we would get involved again with, well, you know, we would lose people. I mean, there's no question about it, Paul. It's hard to bring in college graduates that get excited about printing of any sorts. So we would bring people in and lose them. But the ones I was able to snag were those that had more of a a sales marketing perspective, knowing that we're servicing Home Depot and Home Depot is providing an experience much more. Let me digress a minute. I keep doing this. Lowe's and Home Depot. Lowe's wants to provide the market with the best product. And Lowe's has been relatively successful. Home Depot continues to beat the snot out of those profitability wise because they focus on the experience of the customer. And you mm-hmm. feel that when you listen to their marketing, when you walk in their stores, and you can feel the difference in those two. So early on in my stages with R. Donnelly, as I became, it was about a quarter of my business. So it was my biggest customer. And I really kind of got in tune with Home Depot. And so as we would present to a college graduate bringing in to go through training to become in our management leadership development program, we'd talk about, OK, this is our mission is to to give them everything inside of their company that they're selling, you know, because we it's like I said, it's very hard to wow. get people excited and provide a purpose with just printing And as every day goes by, it gets even more and more difficult. Kids these days. and I love the millennials. I mean, we always hear about people ragging on the millennials. They're decent people and the, the ones that you get and you're able to lock in are so intuitive, so creative and so smart that, you know, I would do my best to keep them. And a lot of times I didn't, and they went on and did other things in their career, but to take and create that purpose, it would take a lot and you'd have to really think about it. And it wasn't an easy thing for me here again, with my littler company that I own a part of, I mean, it's our objective, you know, is to get to some financial targets and that's really about all I have for them. Same thing though. I'm trying to create underneath this, that our customer experiences, that our customers love us and we're growing with our customers because we create a better experience. Like I said, that lady that was a fast pitch softball player in college, she has the determination to just do And she knows the limits of what we can produce. She knows the limits of my company, but she also can work with our customers and say, okay, here's what we're going to do to get this done and get you what you need on time. That rolls then across the whole company. And people get pretty excited when we promote, hey, this is how we got this company, their butter cartons, and they made this big order for Thanksgiving or whatever. You know, it's not like that conference championship dug on it. So
0: when you're looking for people, how do you try to do the sifting right there in terms of finding someone who has higher probability of being aligned ultimately with your company and staying? Yeah, I think that goes back to kind of what you and I talked about earlier
1: on where people that have done interesting things in their past be it you know members of business clubs or art clubs or music clubs in college and back in high school if they can get excited about something they had done be it athleticism or you know being on the team or being a you know whatever they had done you know I also have a pretty solid background in music you know people that can show excitement dedication to you know being in band or whatever those are the kind of people that I get excited about if I get somebody in here that has just doesn't have a something that they were able to grab onto and drive and be successful with, then it's a struggle. And then you have to say, okay, am I going to take a chance on this person? You know, and, and over the past few years, we've had to do that. We've had some wins and had some losses. But again, I do look a lot at the extracurriculars. And I look a lot at, and again, people who are out of college that have gone through, you know, who are job floppers. You know, they go from one year, one year, one year on different jobs you know, it really, I have a hard time with that. And again, usually when I take a chance on a person like that, it doesn't go well. You know, they usually stay here for a year, but the whole process of recruiting and onboarding is its coming, it has to become both art and science now. You really have to spend time and cerebralize it. You know, and back in the day, people were hungrier, it seemed. You know, it, it seemed like, I don't know if it's the change in the market or the change in based on COVID or the people's perspective on the world, but you know, now I really want to spend more time on that upfront and I didn't used to do that.
0: <laughs> so. So, so thanks for that. Some great insight there. Switching gears just a touch. You know, when we are coming through athletics again, our coach was absolutely functional and cranking up the urgency of the situation. And we all kind of experience that in different ways. But when you have something critical where you need to crank up urgency in your organization, just how do you go about it? And in particular, when professionals maybe aren't seeing it the way you're seeing it and you're sensing you're entering a risk zone you'd rather not be in. So what do you
1: do? Well, there's, there's two big things that I have tried to teach my team how to do, Paul, and what I've always, always done. And I'll start with the real basics. So let's break it down. We all have too many meetings in our day. I'll be in a meeting, our, like we have a production meeting every day at nine o'clock for 15 minutes. And usually at the end of that meeting, we'll have a stay behind and go over a topic, be it a press that has something wrong or you know, a customer that needs something special or whatever. Again, an athlete understands and brings to the table. Whereas you know, in business world, it's kind of hard to get a team to focus and get that sense of urgency. So I had two comments to make. Number one, that I tried to drive into my team, my leadership team when I started here, as well as the technical group that supports my company was to make sure that you're ready for those kind of discussions. The, the things that are hot, you have the information you need available and the data. So we all have action item lists, including myself and every person on my staff and all the things that are high on our priority list, we have documented and tracked. That's my number one point. And on a weekly basis, we'll spend 15 minutes and we'll go over our action item list, prioritized and whatnot, so that when something fails or something falls apart, we at least have the Where were we with it and where are we at right now? And you can use that data to make that fix or whatever. Now, the other one is a little more intrinsic in that we had people just wouldn't act. (laughs) My first, you know, interactions with my leadership team, of which I changed a few out. There was a few that just couldn't catch on and do well, although I have a wonderful team now. They're fantastic after a year and two months. One of the things we started with was if you run into a situation, pull everybody in, engage, get it fixed immediately. And Don't let it delay. And when I came on board, there was an example was we had a die-cutting piece of equipment that had been sitting for four months. Four months, a piece of equipment that was an asset that the company that we could use to produce product, and we weren't servicing our customers when I got here. So I kept diving into why is this piece of equipment down? And there was no zero zero sense of urgency to bring in what we needed from a technical support position, get the proper pieces to fix the piece of equipment, and so on and so forth. So I immediately, at the end of our first production meeting, I got on the phone with the company that produces that piece of equipment, sat with my entire team, and I, we spoke about what do we need to do next? Where are we at today? We got came in the next day, and some of the action items that I'd given to my team had not been followed up on. So we picked up the phone and made another phone call. And in that meeting, in that moment, it wasn't even a sense of urgency. It was really How do we conduct ourselves to get things done? Which, you know, for someone who just knows you you can't just let a piece of an asset sit for four months, you got to act. So I'm using that example because on a very regular basis, people would come into my office and I wouldn't have what I needed, but I would set myself on the desk and I would push a button to whoever we needed to talk to, be them in Spain or New York or Los Angeles. And we would have that interaction and create that sense of urgency immediately. So now, after a year and two months, I'll walk into what my director of operations office and we'll have a discussion and she'll push the button and make that phone call on the spot <laughs> and yeah. say, okay, we're going to address this right now. And we're going to get that next action item engaged so that we either have it done tomorrow or within a time frame we've all agreed to. So again, I think going back to the athlete Paul, I mean, that's where that's driven from the people I've worked with who know that there's two minutes left in the game. you got to get that done to make money or you got to get that done to score that goal. You've got to act now. And that whole sense of urgency thing is something that as a leader, I feel you have to train. You have to make sure your team is understanding that every item, if it's
0: worth doing, it's worth doing right now. (laughs) Excellent background, Greg. You said create. You have to create the urgency. And then you went on and you started describing the communication. So how do you, through communication, create the sense of urgency? And now when we talk about Coach Burkle. From a million years ago we know how he created urgency and so there was oh, a yeah. sign there was a definite pattern of communication so do you use any of that or just what do you do and second part of the question is how do you teach your management team to crank up the urgency through communication
1: well, great question in the company that I'm in now Color in ColorCraft, I definitely do it by showing, by teaching, by doing it, by actually, you know, we're a small enough company. I have hundred employees, you know, we have, you know, eight, nine managers, and leaders, and those eight, nine people, I have the ability to show them that I run the company, but it's just a part of how we all are going to do business. And so again, in our we have a daily meeting for 15 minutes to go over production schedules, safety, any HR topics, blah, blah, blah. And at the end of that meeting, I make every person at the table talk. We go around and round table and they, if you have something great, if you don't great, but I give you the opportunity to bring what's urgent. And I make sure that if we need to get it done today, we have it covered in that meeting. So with me, Paul, it's more a matter of, I can't teach a person who doesn't have that in their background to be urgent. But I can at least show it. And by showing it, I believe that we've created the environment here where urgency is a big part of our daily date activity. Every single one of our orders in the company has a due date, and that's mm-hmm. we have to work to those dates. So Sure.
0: So you essentially have a de facto procedure that can be demonstrated when a new manager comes in through the behavior and the contribution of the communication during that meeting. And also, this is a question, so correct me if I'm wrong, and also your expectation of the information you expect to receive. Is that a fair statement? Yes, so absolutely.
1: I was going to add to that, Paul, by saying that, you know, it's very easy if you're not careful, you as a leader, you could come off as being a micromanager, you can come off as being arrogant, you come off as being, you know, an ass. <laughs> you don't want any of those things. So you really, you really have to partner. And so as, as a person doesn't show that sense of urgency, I almost always engage by saying, hey, let me help you. Let's you and I make that phone call because it's not uncomfortable, but they, next time they know that I'm going to say, Hey, let's you and I make that phone call (laughs) and then they make it on their own. So it's almost a training mechanism and we do it in those meetings. I mean, all of us, be it seven, eight, nine people in those meetings, we'll stop on the spot right there and make that communication, address that issue on the spot. And I think that also people don't necessarily want to do that in a whole group. (laughs) And, but you know, I don't get mad. I don't get pissed off. We just work through through it in that format. So as you continue to do things like that, people know that okay, I'm going to address this now on my own or else when we talk
0: about it tomorrow's meeting or in
1: my one-on-one, we're going to do it then, so I might as well do it now. <laughs> yeah. So you
0: know, it's, very it's overt- interesting
1: out all kind. Of-
0: yeah, sorry, Craig, go ahead. Nope, that's it. That's it. I was just going to, for my understanding throwing back and so the listener gets it. So it's a very overt demonstration of the timing and the actual item to execute. Based Based on a context, that's outstanding. That really helps. In your experience, you had mentioned that you've done some changeover of key employees and stuff. So I'm back to purpose now and alignment and culture. How much did that play in? And if you could share anything without divulging the confidence that you shouldn't, you know, what, what led up to the decision to part ways?
1: Yes. So when I came on board, there were three positions over production. And I knew, you know, based on my history that I really only needed two people to, I needed a, like a director a leader of operations and a, and a production manager. So we had three people in that position. One was a supervisor, one was a production manager, and one was a director. And so I knew coming in that financially there was no need and from the size of the facility whatnot. I was going to have to make a decision. So basically, you know, through my one-on-ones and through watching activities, watching the leadership, the sense of urgency, all the things we've kind of spoke of, I picked out the one that wasn't going to be with us any longer. What I found is when I made that move and pulled that person out, you know, we were very, it was very good. We gave him severance, blah, blah, blah. The whole, the rest of the team immediately picked up and stepped Mm -hmm. up and was totally engaged another step and level above that. So that's one example, Paul, that I wanted to share that, yeah, I think that when you eliminate a person on your team that's not contributing, and again, I could get really into the gory detail, but if it's a person that's on your team that's not contributing and others see that and feel it, you're better off to part ways and figure out how to do it with what you got. On that situation it was extremely powerful that that separation occurred. Let me take it to the next level though. One thing I've taught my team, and this is kind of I don't want to say it's cruel, but it's the reality of what we live in. If I go into my daily communications with my team and every day I hear about an employee that has created a problem for my other employees in the shop, I I take concern. And so if I hear about this person today and then we come in tomorrow and I hear about this person. So when I started, we had like eight people like that. (laughs) <laughs> and again, it's, it's just the reality of the business world we live in is if, if I have a team of 87 people or 100 people and seven people are hurting the other 87 and whatever they do, I'm here for the majority. I want my team to be successful. I want my team to win. So why would I keep those seven people that are picking the crap out of my 87 that are wonderful, contributing, dedicated, mm-hmm. caring, you know? So as time went by, I used the term. I said, hey, we heard about so-and-so yesterday. Or what are we doing today? And as time went by with those seven people, we did eliminate them all. And we're a better company today. And so if we're in our production meeting in the morning, a lot happens in this meeting fall. I use it because it's really the focus start of our day and in the production facility is very important. Mm-hmm. But if you hear about somebody today and then you hear about them t- again tomorrow, they all look over at me or look at their leader and say, Hey, we're going to probably have a problem here.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. turned
1: into, you know, how do we make the whole better than the pieces, you know? So, right.
0: Yeah, excellent. That's super great stuff. So, we've covered a lot of ground already. I'd like to just circle back to the idea of practice as a professional, again, deliberate practice and maybe expand on that a little bit. Can you share any examples of what you do at your company and do you expect the person to do it offsite or do you actually make time or is it a hybrid of that? How do you ensure skills don't get old and people keep their value add current? Yes. Great question. I use two separate
1: situations for my controller. As an example, I hired a really solid controller, but I can see that because again, we're not the biggest company in the world and I want to develop this person. I have used to go to a, a thing called executive agenda and Paul, I don't know if you've heard of that, but in Milwaukee, there's a opportunity to go and meet with like 10 to 14 other leaders in separate industries where you can go on a quarterly basis and speak about current events, current issues that relate directly to you. And because I'm a smaller company, I don't really get the vibe like I had at R Donnelly about what's going on in the world market and everything. So what I did is I, I used to do that as a young manager is go to executive agenda. And again, it was a wonderful experience. So I've assigned him to go to that and he loves it. It opens up his world. He brings in great new ideas. It keeps him fresh. And again, from an accounting uh, finance perspective he needs that. So that's that was one method that I might put other people on my leadership team into executive agenda. The other is a company called Living as a Leader. And Paul, I can see you leading something like this, but the name of the company is Living as a Leader. If you wanna Google it or look it up, I've used this company over the years to just do leadership training. So my director of operations is a, a wonderful lady. She is outstanding at running the facility but I don't want her to get stale. I want her to learn more of the current leadership, the things that you and I have talked about. I mean, how do you go to that next level and become a better leader? So the company, Alita Norris is the person that owns that company. And again, Paul, she's like you. (laughs) She's very wanting to learn and teach people the newer ways to lead corporations. So I'm going to send Kay through one of those leadership training sessions. And actually they have coaches and I've used their coaches over the years that kind of zero in on that leader's needs. And again, the nice thing is, is both of those executive agenda and living as a leader, they don't have anything to do with me. It's really to develop that person. It's really to get them separated from the company, look at... Coming into the company and knowing more and being smarter and learning more. And and those two facilities have, have worked really well for me.
0: Excellent. Excellent. And does the concept of training and deliver practice and stay current, how does that change when you go from the production floor or from where you are down to the production floor? Yeah. So the production floor, when I got here, we had basically
1: no training program. And what we've done is broke down. This is something I did learn at Ardonnelly was Ardonnelly uh, because it was a very large company. We, we had some very specific and nice training programs in place. And I've been able to pull from that back knowledge and use what I learned there to develop, you know, how do we, it goes all the way back to onboarding, you know, how do you onboard a person when they walk in, if they don't have a training schedule that they can see and follow and grab a hold of, it's very hard for them to get excited because they're going to be flapping around all over the place and then they lose interest. They get frustrated. So one thing we buttoned up in my first, as probably took us a while, but first nine months I was here was the training per department and buttoning up, how do you, these are what you, this is what you need to know. Here's your mentor and here's your mentor's check. That means that they, you are capable of that. And then we do follow up on it. So that, and it kind of falls along with the preventative maintenance. You know, when they get trained up, they know how to maintain their machine. And we have round tables with our employees so that if every quarter we'll sit down and, Hey, if, if you're having issues, let us know and we'll list them and follow up. So
0: that's kind of how we bring it full circle. Okay, excellent. So, time flies, buddy. What should we talk about that uh, I haven't asked yet? Do you have any thoughts that would help us?
1: Yeah. One thing, Paul, that I grabbed a hold of when you sent me these questions, because I really appreciate that. It really helped me understand what we were going to try to cover today was the question about toughness. Your question to me was, what is toughness and why does it matter in your career and organization? And as I look back at toughness and what, you know, what you and I face on a football field as a kid and what we face today, I relate the term toughness in the business world more as confidence. And what do I mean by that? So toughness on on the playing field is you can take a hit and you can deliver a hit and you have no problem with any of that. In the business world, it's a matter of the same thing, but in a mental term, you know, how do you use your brain? And I consider confidence as the biggest, most important thing for a business leader to have, just like toughness is the most important thing that a person on a playing field should have. So I made a couple notes about, you know, let me divert to my son. When my son walked on the field, because of his preparation, he knew that there was nobody On that field, that was going to be even close to what he could put on that field. So, as a business person, I want to do that and create a confidence within my soul that when Mm -hmm. I step into my office, if my people need me to perform and my customer needs something from us as a company, I am going to perform. So, how do you take that toughness and then turn that confidence that is the same thing as toughness in athletics? If you have that mentality, how do you become confident? You become confident by going above and beyond to learn. You become confident by understanding your team and knowing that you're not gonna miss a beat because you're connected. You know, confidence, like I said, in in the business world, if you don't have confidence, it's it's almost as important as trust. I mean, trust is a given. If you lose trust, you're done. But if you have confidence, that takes your whole organization to the next level. And as a leader, your whole ownership of what you're through, if you can create that confidence, not by being cocky and an asshole, but by being, you know, by being real and learning and knowing that you've done everything you can to prepare And everything you can to lead your team, your company, your department, then that creates the confidence that creates the toughness of a business person. So that was an interesting question. Really made me think, Paul. So.
0: That's outstanding. Thank you for that. You also did a nice job encapsulating through that response just why practice matters and preparation and everything we can do to prepare for what's about to happen. So we're comfortable being uncomfortable and we can push through what's about to happen in a that way that. that meets the goals with confidence, as you said. That's outstanding. I really appreciate your time today. I'm going to ask you, give you a little heads up of what your three some number of takeaways for the listener would be that you would want them to remember and take away. So I'm going to start. I really liked your mastery and autonomy and purpose as. A vehicle to communicate to my team. I mean, it's a very complex process, and those are three silos that you can really, I feel like, based on my understanding and experience, customize and create a language between you and that person. I mean, who doesn't want to be a master, right? Who doesn't want to have a line purpose, and you know, who doesn't want some autonomy in what they do? We know that, and we certainly learn different aspects in our MBA, and each one in and of itself is kind of a Pandora's box, right? We could do a, a podcast on each one alone out any question. But <laughs> I really like that summary as a way to kind of set expectation, communicate expectation, find out status, and kind of hand over the responsibility to that person. And then, of course, to follow up and make sure they're accountable. But that was something I definitely will take away. How about you, Greg? Yeah, the one thing like
1: I just ended with Paul, that, that resonated with me. My takeaway from doing this with you was was that whole idea of confidence versus toughness. It was an interesting thought process I went through to get to that point. And then then obviously the discussions on on intensity and the urgency of of what we do and what we have to do and what can be lost from a profitability perspective and from a continuity perspective if you don't have that sense of urgency, if you wait and wait and wait and you lose control. So the importance of that sense of urgency was a huge takeaway for me from preparing and presenting this to you. So those three things, Paul, and again... I'm not going to take credit for the mastery autonomy purpose. at Simon Sinek, but I tell you, he's somebody that I would, as a leader, I listen to him often, and he's given me some really good pieces of things that help me to become better. But,
0: but yeah, so those are my key takeaways. But that's how Stan. I got to ask another question with urgency and toughness in the back of your brain right now. What do you think you're going to do with that? Well, again, the sense of urgency, I feel like I've broken through with my team. My objective now
1: is to make sure that my team is driving that down. We have a huge opportunity within my company today to grow. You know, we won another $1.5 million project yesterday. We're only a $35 million company. That's a lot. So we're going to be needing to bring on people. And as I develop, thank you. As you know, as you look at Manitowoc, Wisconsin to drive good leaders and find good people, you know, we really do have to develop them. So we look internally. So those two items, All the confidence and the toughness that my team needs to bring down into their direct reports is critical an example our shipping manager reports into our my director of operations she's new she's fresh she's excited but she doesn't have a lot of the skill sets that it takes to run a significant department you know we're going through growth in that department as well as as we grow we're we're bringing a new uh, warehouse management system blah 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 so we need that person to grow so as i look at the topics we've talked about today those are things I can definitely be bringing back to my team and saying, Hey, you guys check me out on this podcast thingy and then let's do some of this stuff. So,
0: <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Right? excellent. Well, I really appreciate your time and effort, Greg, as always. I would love to maybe invite you back someday too. There's so much we can talk about. We both really, I think, business, it's fair to say, is definitely in both of our hobby zones. We just love the concept and the challenge and the rewards and the people that really come through. So thank you, buddy. It's great to see you. And that's it. All right. Thanks so much, Paul. Yeah, I got to get back to work,
1: man. But this was a total blast. And I do really appreciate it, Paul. Thank you so much. Uh, Take care. We'll be
0: in touch. It was great to see you, buddy. Take care. Thanks. That was Greg Weber of ColorCraft Graphic Arts out of Wisconsin. He's their CEO and had so much great insight. Thank you, Greg. Really appreciate you being here. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and share to the Fit Professional One podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to what Greg had to say today, and I hope I can count on you being back for the next episode of the podcast. Until then, I hope you have just a fabulous couple of weeks. It's time to get to work.